I was having a, a conversation with someone and they were asking me, do you think you'll ever run out of podcast topics? And I said, no, absolutely not. Because the things that you think are incredibly boring and that no one could ever write an entire book about them because they'd be too boring to write a book about turn out to be quite interesting. And someone has written a book about it. And the example that I used to prove the point was I'm like, I bet you someone's written a book about krill. And I did a search and I was like, hey, someone's written a book about krill. It looks really good. I want to get this book. And, and that's how I found your book. Well, I'm horrified that you thought Grilla boring to start with, and I hope you don't think that anymore. With me is Stephen Nichol. He has a PhD in biology from Dalhousie University and worked at the Australian Antarctic Division as a research scientist and program leader from 1987 to 2011. He was awarded the Australian Antarctic Medal in 2011 for services to Antarctic research and management. He's also the author of the new book, The Curious Life of Krill, a conservation story from the bottom of the world, which he's here to talk to us about today. Stephen, lovely to have you. It's lovely to be here. So how did you come to Krill as a scientific research topic of interest? Ah, well, that's where the Canadian connection comes in, because um, I started, I did a degree in oceanography um, in the UK and then moved over to Canada to do my PhD at Dalhousie. And I um, was looking for a project um, uh, that I wanted, uh, that, that would attract my attention. And I wanted to work on something that was somewhat visual, I suppose. So, I was told that in the Bay of Fundy there was this area where the uh, there were krill that came to the surface and were fed on by whales and birds and um, all sorts of other animals, and that it was a really spectacular thing to see, and that nobody know why what, knew why it happened. So I um, I got interested in that and went down to have a look at it, and it was indeed incredibly interesting. So I. Um, that became my PhD project to try and work out why they were swarming at the surface uh, in this really dynamic area. And did you end up solving that problem? Sort of, yes. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the obvious solution seemed to be that they were at the surface. The, they were largely females and they were at the surface laying their eggs. And uh, so the water was full of eggs and the females were up there and uh, uh the that seemed to be the basic um issue but they they were also doing all sorts of other things as well which was kind of interesting so from that point on did you do you just kind of keep going with krill because you had uh, an initial start there or did something about krill kind of capture you in that first project you did on them well i i grew to quite like krill right from the start when i first saw them and um I then, uh, uh, I was extremely lucky because most scientists have to um, uh, chop and change as they go through their careers, whereas I was very lucky. I actually got a job down here in Tasmania um, working with the Australian Antarctic Division to run the krill research program, and I just stayed. Uh, so I kept working on one group of animals right through my professional career. It's interesting. Um, the One of the things you talk quite a bit about in this book is how kind of everyone knows about krill, but nobody, not a lot of people actually know very much about krill. And we have some fairly common misconceptions. And just it, it really kind of delighted me a little bit as you as you got into some of this, because uh, 
I I found this book kind of in that way. I was having a, a conversation with someone and they were asking me, do you think you'll ever run out of podcast topics? And I said, no, absolutely not. Because the things that you think are incredibly boring and that no one could ever write an entire book about them because they'd be too boring to write a book about turn out to be quite interesting. And someone has written a book about it. And the example that I used to prove the point was I'm like, I bet you someone's written a book about Krill. And I did a search and I was like, hey, someone's written a book about Krill. It looks really good. I want to get this book. And and that's how I found your book. Yeah, but I'm horrified that you thought Grilla boring to start with, and I hope you don't think that anymore. Well, the the thing was, it um, wasn't that I thought they were boring, but they definitely have a a PR problem of being thought as boring. Yeah, well, that was exactly the motivation for writing the book. I, I got fed up with all this nonsense being written about krill and people trotting out the same little phrases about krill. Krill are tiny shrimp-like crustaceans and krill are planktonic and all this sort of stuff. And I just, um, I was fed up with it and uh, I, I, I thought someone's going to set the record straight. And I'd, I'd written quite a bit of popular science before in short articles and so on, but I thought the way to do it was to actually write the book and set the record straight. And so that's what I tried to do. What I found quite interesting is um, from the perspective of krill, they're so abundant. Um, we get these massive, massive swarms of them. Um, you know, they're, they're the food of whales. So there, there's lots yes. of them around. Um, but at the same time, it turns out we there's still a lot of mysteries about them. We don't actually know as much about krill as I think the average person would suspect. We would kind of think of krill as like a known entity, but actually there's some, there's some difficult things that we don't know yet about them. Yeah, well, they're actually fairly difficult to study. I mean, uh, and I'll concentrate here talking about the Antarctic krill, which is the one that the really most abundant species of krill that occurs um, around the, the right around the Antarctic, and that's obviously kind of difficult to get at. Um, not only is it a long way away from almost everywhere, and uh, but uh, half of the year their habitat's covered by ice. So just going, getting in there, trying to to study them in their natural habitat. Is, is, is kind of tricky. We also don't really have uh, particularly good tools for studying them. Uh, uh, what the traditional way of studying krill has been: you go down south in a in a boat and you chuck a net off the side and you pull up a whole lot of krill and you pickle them and you take them back to your laboratory and study them. And that, you know, to my mind, is not really the best way to find out about um, you know living, breathing animals. Um, it's better to have. If you could observe them uh, behaving in the wild, um, or if you can uh, actually have them alive in laboratories, you can start to learn an awful lot more than just by measuring them in, in, the, in the laboratory when they're dead. Yeah, there's not much you can tell about a dead krill. I guess you can dissect one and you can <laughs> learn a bit about its sort of physical biology, but that's only a very small part of a creature's existence in the world. You really get nothing about its behavior in that in in that kind of study. No, no, and uh, uh, you know, even in the earliest days when people were studying krill back in the 1930s. Uh, <clears throat> There's some absolutely beautiful descriptions of the behavior of krill taken from um, uh, the, the ships that they had um, then, and also also from uh, shore-based observations. Uh, and uh, they're absolutely lyrical descriptions, and they haven't been bettered since because uh, in those days people took a little bit, bit more time to um, to observe the animals they would try to deal with, and 
then we got into much more automated um, sampling and uh, much more uh, rigid sampling regimes. And more recently, we use echo sounders a lot to study quill. And what that means is you just sit and look at a computer screen um, and look at the uh, the echo sounder return on the computer screen. So you don't actually get a, a great deal of feeling for the animals themselves. Um, so it wasn't really until we started um, keeping... Um, Krill alive in the laboratory, and we began to uh, uh, piece together some of the mysteries of uh, the life of krill. But it's uh, we're still a long way f- from completely understanding them, and that's partly because we can't. As you said, they, they live in these vast forms, and we can't really visualize those forms. We don't know what they're doing most of the time, um, and uh, it's just uh, you know. We can only ever be down there for such a short period of time that uh, we, we only get this incomplete picture. There's this um, interesting dichotomy with krill where you get this very small creature. You kind of have to get up close to them to see how individual krill are interacting. But also you have this kind of um, colony swarm structure where you really need to zoom quite far out to be able to understand what the greater swarm is doing because there's broader social behavior in that large group as well. And I can see how trying to do both, especially in the same trip, must be basically impossible. You must sort of have to, if you're doing a research research on krill, you must have to kind of either look at them as a swarm or really focus in and in the lab and look at them as a kind of smaller group of individuals. Yeah, and that's that's that. You're absolutely true there. And uh, the so the we're starting to actually have much better um, uh, electronics to to look at how the swarms themselves behave. And we had a voyage um, just come back um, last week from Antarctica, and they were using the most up to date um, echo sounder electronics, and they could actually make three dimensional um, uh, pictures of what the swarms look like and how they changed with um, with time. And that's really amazing to watch that. But but still, you you can only do that for a very short period of time. So you you can see uh, sit on a swarm for a day or two, but um, that swarm's probably there for 365 days of the year, and what it does. With it's, it's time all that time we don't know and whether it's the same individuals all the time all these things are um, speculative and you know when when you talk about you know the individuals and the swarms uh, and the colony like structure it's absolutely right but when you compare it to say uh, colonies of bees or um, ants and so on uh, what you can do with those you can actually get up really close and you can spend long periods of time observing the behavior of both the colonies and the individuals right. and that's that's really valuable in the sea you you actually need these things like echo sanders to actually be able to see properly and because uh, you can't actually do it um uh you know from a ship mm-hmm. um with your eyes yeah, there's a there's a, always got to be this kind of layer of interpretation between you and the swarm, I guess. Absolutely, that's that's completely true. Yeah, and you know there are occasional um, uh, occasions where you get um, you do get the chance to actually observe them in the wild, and that that's what happened for me in the Bay of Fundy. I was able to sit on a little fishing boat and actually watch the krill there as they came to the surface and they behaved and so on, and that. That altered the way I looked at krill um, right uh, right from the start because uh, most oceanographers and marine biologists view 
um, things that live in the ocean as, as these little particles and so on, they, you know, they, they're sort of random things. Um, and so you can um, basically describe their um, their distribution because of the oceanography that's out there. Whereas uh, I could see right from the start that, you know, these were behaving, schooling animals that moved through the water with a purpose. And we just didn't know what the purpose was, but you could still see them doing this. And uh, that gives you a, a different perspective on them. And uh, there are also some uh, instances where people have actually dived on krill spawns. And you get really amazing insights as to how the animals behave in there, in the spawns, just by being able to see them. But um, these are very rare um, occasions. And most often, we, as you say, we have to have this layer of instruments between us and them. I seem to recall as well, um, somewhere in the book, you talked about one of the most interesting bits of krill behavior that we've captured was actually kind of captured a little bit by accident. The It was captured on video. Someone was trying to video something else and there was some krill on screen yes. and we managed to capture a behavior we'd never seen before. Yeah, this is, you know, the advantage of um, uh, having uh, uh, video footage is that you can actually see these things that... Um, that nobody had even imagined might be there. And often, um, as you say, it's, uh, it's accidental. And the, uh, the case in point, I think, was there was when we uh, discovered krill mating on near the seafloor. And, uh, it wasn't, uh, the, the, the camera was down there to look at something else altogether. Mm-hmm. And we just heard, heard of the footage. And, uh, for the reason that the, the, the people who had the footage down there they were trying to look at this other thing and they, they kept. They came to us complaining. There's all this krill in the way. We can't see anything. And there was two interesting bits about that. One of which was the krill shouldn't have been that deep down in the water anyway, because we imagine krills live most of the time up in the top, about 200 meters of the water. This was down to 600 meters, and uh, so that was interesting in itself. So we started looking at the footage, and then there was all this strange behaviour going on, and then. Uh, my colleague said to me, oh, my God, you know what they're doing? And they were mating. And this hadn't really been observed before um, in any great detail. Um, so, so yes. Uh, and what we've started to do from now on is, you know, whenever anyone puts a video camera down anywhere in the ocean is try and get a look at that footage because very often you'll find there's uh, – there's krill in the way, getting in the way of the video footage. And, and it tells you where krill are in the water, which um, is not an easy thing to find out if you're not, um, if you don't, if you're not used to looking there. Um, I was, uh, there was a, the, the David Attenborough uh, film about the Great Barrier Reef the other day. And then one of the things that they did was they said this submersible down off the Barrier Reef. And everyone, of course, was really interested in the corals and things. But as, they, as the submersible went down, the, the, the video got obscured by all these krill. And I was like, well, what a krill, <laughs> the Great Barrier Reef. But uh, it's, uh, so yeah, just, the simplest act of getting uh, video or photographic evidence um, of krill being in places can change the way you look at everything. I was really surprised knowing that, you know, I sort of knew that krill um, moved in these massive swarms and that uh, there's, I think there's make up some of the, if you add it together, it's a huge amount of biomass, um, but that it yeah. can actually be quite difficult to find them in the ocean. And that quite surprised me. I didn't realize that just tracking them down can be sometimes quite difficult. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's to some extent the purpose of the swarms is because if you think of yourself like a whale is that uh, 
you know, what the gorilla are trying to do is is to keep away from their predators, and they do this by just not being there in a large part of their habitat. Um, and so they 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 um, aggregate in these huge swarms. So the the swarms can suffer really heavy predation when. Um, their predators find them, but it takes a lot of work for the predators to actually find them, and so that's that's like their their, their strategy. But the, there's a lot of ocean out there, and there's also a lot of krill. So it's a, it's a question of uh, it's, a, it's a, like a hide and seek um, operation, and we 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 have a vague idea where we start looking for krill, but uh, uh, it's it, it's not always successful. Um, I was also interested to hear about the migration patterns. I, I sort of assumed that they had some uh, kind of uh, migration with currents and things like that. But I didn't realize that there's, I think, a daily vertical migration as well, where they come up and, and then go down into the into the depths of the ocean. I think that was on a daily basis. Yeah, so so an awful lot of animals in the ocean do this, and it's what it, it, it's just this amazing phenomenon right throughout all the oceans of the world is that uh, um, uh, animals will go from spending the day down in the dark waters and coming back up into the uh, into the surface waters um, uh, at night, and we think it's it's largely a, a predation avoidance um, uh, behavior, but uh, you know just. Vast numbers of animals of a wide range of sizes do this, so it must actually have some really adaptive uh, um, effect. So what they do is they do this um, up and down movement all the time, and we've known for a long while quilting this, um, but it's still a bit of a mystery because it, you know in some parts of their habitat they do it um, quite dramatically, in other parts they don't, but some. Times of year they do it dramatically, and other times they don't. So we're, we're sort of piecing together this behavior from a, from a whole patchwork of observations. Um, but it, it's there. Um, to me, what's more um, astounding at the moment is that we're beginning to discover that they do these horizontal migrations. And uh, as I said, most um, oceanographers and marine biologists think that most of the uh, smaller animals in the sea, they, you can describe where you'll find them largely based on the the, the currents and so on. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, we're beginning to find out that they uh, they, they can actually uh, dictate where they want to be and, and can get there. And uh, uh, it's it's fairly controversial because a lot of people don't like that idea at all. Um, that they, that these animals are are, are not just uh, at, at the whim of the currents, but uh, there is certainly uh, mounting evidence that they uh, they do these migrations um, uh, uh, horizontal ones, particularly onshore, offshore. Um, so moving inshore um, in winter and g- going deeper down in, in, in on the continental shelf, and then moving offshore again in summer. And we also know that the females. Um, during summer are found further offshore than the males and are laying their eggs further offshore. And so they must get there somehow. And it may not be entirely that they're, they're able to do this by swimming, but they might be able to exploit um, uh, different currents to get where they want. But they have this ability to, to get to places they want to get to. 
So where they're getting to is not always consistent with precisely where where you would expect them to be. Is that kind of what we're seeing? Is that it's not just um, it's not just them kind of tagging a ride and happening to be somewhere, but there's there seems to be some goal in mind. Yeah, um, it seems there's certainly well we know it's a consistent pattern. We're beginning to we're beginning to discover that it's a consistent pattern. So the the uh, the, the the fact that they come inshore in winter, mm-hmm. um, it's only just becoming um, apparent now because the it's only recently that we've been able to get onto the continental shelf in Antarctica in winter, and this is partly because of the the, the fact that the sea ice is uh, declined during winter um, uh, because the of the warming oceans. So we didn't used to be able to get there before, and we can see now that the the krill are largely um, much closer inshore in in wintertime than they are in summertime. Um, and we know it also from the krill fishing fleet, which uh, fishes much closer inshore when it can, and now it can fish much more in uh, in uh, in uh, the uh, in the wintertime. So uh, it's definitely a uh, something that is. Uh, that we're beginning to discover more and more about. Are there any theories as to why they're doing this motion? Is there? I'm assuming it's probably food related. Um, that there's food at particular times or in particular spaces that they're going for. Yes. Yeah, so what we've got is it's not necessarily food related, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, for instance, the onshore of my shore migration of the females. What we think that is is that the females are laying their eggs offshore in deeper water. The eggs sink. So it makes a lot of sense to go offshore where the water is deeper, so the eggs don't end up on the seafloor. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, so so they they do that, and we know they do that. We've known they do that for a long while. So you've got that, and then there's the uh, um, uh, the, the other advantage to laying the eggs offshore is that uh, it's away from the rest of the po- krill population, and the krill population is so voracious that they'll eat anything in the water. So if you lay your eggs in the middle of a krill swarm, they'll get eaten. Ah. <laughs> so the whole idea is get, get away from all your hungry friends. Um, so that, that's, um, that's one of the, um, the um, ex- explanations for the onshore offshore migrations. With the um, the eggs, so the females lay the eggs far in deeper water um, because they just kind of, I guess, start to sink as um, yeah. as the the eggs get ready to hatch. How long does that process take, and and how far generally do they sink before the little baby girl come out? Okay, so what happens is it's a really complex process. So laid in the surface water, and they sink, and they sink for. Um, about a week, I think, week or ten days, they'll sink, um, and then they uh, they hatch, and then they begin sw- begin swimming upwards again. Mm-hmm. And so, so this um, this process um, until they reach the surface is several weeks, and then it's not until they reach the surface that the the little the little embryos then have. Um, uh, have developed into a state because they develop all the time they're doing this. It's, mm-hmm. it's not, they don't sort of hatch into a larva and the larva swims up. No, it develops as it goes up, and it and by the time it reaches the surface, it's actually developed um, feeding um, a feeding apparatus so it can actually eat. Um, and uh, so and then it's 
pretty hungry. So what it has to do is to is to find um, uh, sufficient food to eat um, fairly quickly, or else it just dies. So, so it's a fairly complex process, and so there must be some relationship between where the females are laying the eggs and where there is likely to be food in um, when the egg, when the uh, the larvae get to the surface. So when the larvae get to the surface, um, are the females kind of laying eggs on the outskirts of the swarm so that when the larvae come yes, to the surface, yes. the swarm's nearby and they kind of, kind of join, join that swarm. They don't kind of create a new swarm based on having all the eggs. Oh, no, no, the, the, spawn. Yeah. So what you have is that the, 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 the little krill, um, the, the, the larvae, uh, are really small. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they are, they're quite distinct, um, uh, from the adult population. They remain distinct from the adult population for 18 months or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they have um, they have this. Um, what seems to happen is that when the larvae have come to the surface, they then start developing and getting bigger, and then winter comes in. So what happens in winter is that the ice starts to extend over the ocean, and then as the ice extends over the ocean, there's um, uh, the the larvae become associated with the ice and stick underneath the the ice. Um, as the ice expands and then contract, and then when the um, when the ice uh, when the ice has, is finally melting, then they're sort of brought back inshore with the adults uh, nearer to the adult population. By that point, they're juveniles and they're um, and they've got another year to go before they start reproducing. Ah, interesting. So they're kind of catch a bit of a ride on the retreating ice, uh, in order to kind of get deposited yeah. more in the central place of the group. Cause I was wondering, would this kind of result in, um, when you, when you talked about how, uh, the female krill go out to kind of the outskirts and lay the eggs? I wonder, does that kind of mean then that like the outer portions of the swarm tend to be younger than the inner portions if you kind of do this over and over again? Yeah, well, you you tend to find the 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 the, the larvae, the adults, and the, the juveniles are all quite distinct. They have different distributions. Mm. Yeah, um, but uh, the other thing about for the larvae though is that when they're underneath the ice, you get all this algae growing on the underside of the ice, mm-hmm. and that becomes their food during winter. So they really have to eat because they don't have any uh, much in the way of fat reserves. So they. They need a food supply. That food supply seems to be these sort of pastures that grow on the underside of the ice. Ah, I see. So they're using it both as a key food source and then also getting the side benefit of getting a ride farther into the swarm. Exactly, yes. And the, the other thing it does is it, it protects them from predation from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, birds and so on that would, would come in um, uh, normally. So, so they, they get a lot of benefits from being under the ice. Um, but it's one of these things we've only found out about in the last 20 years because uh, we've not been able to get inside the ice. It's not until we got access to research icebreakers that we were able to discover all this. So this is all comparatively new information that we're learning then, the idea that uh, that young krill ride the ice and feed off the ice and kind of use yeah. that as a little bit of a nursery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, as I said, it all started in the 1980s when we discovered when we got access to research icebreakers. But there's still only been you know a handful of voyages into the into the ice in winter, looking at what krill are doing there. So we we have this real patchwork of information that uh, that we have to try every time we do one of these voyages. We get a, a new insight into what's happening there, and, uh, and we rewrite the story. And it's uh, but we're beginning. to we're now fairly sure that the krill larvae are really 
um, tied into the ice, and we have these theories as to why that might be. But next time somebody goes out there, those theories might be dashed. I also want to talk a little bit more about studying krill inside a laboratory environment, because obviously studying them out in their real world environment is great, but that poses a lot of challenges. Um, and so there over time, there's actually, we know quite a lot about how to keep krill happy in a lab environment and have, um, and have numbers of them there where we can observe them a little bit more close up. Yeah. So the the first lab studies um, on krill actually occurred in the 1960s, the first real ones, and they they occurred on the uh, in a laboratory that was established on the Antarctic continent on one of the U.S. bases. Um, and then it wasn't until about the 1980s um, when there was a, there was actually a big push um, into studying krill because the krill fishery was starting to get big at that point. And one of the things that happened there was um, uh, the establishment of some uh, some laboratories um, outside Antarctica. And so there was one established in the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, another one in, in the, the German um, Polar Institute uh, in Bremerhaven, and then there was one established here at the Australian Antarctic Division in Kingston. And I think the the Australian one is the only one left, and it's quite a sophisticated laboratory now. It's been through several iterations, and it's allowed us to look at all sorts of stuff that just weren't possible before. And a whole lot of, um, you know, accidental, again, uh, findings uh, that, you know, you you just, you you find as a byproduct trying to do something else. Um, so uh, things like how long krill live, and whether um, how long they can live without food and things like this, um, uh, we all dis- we discovered these sorts of things, um, not because we were necessarily asking those particular questions, but because we were keeping the animals there to uh, to do other things. And uh, so, when I first started working on krill, um, the idea was that krill lived for about two years, and then when people started keeping them alive. Um, they realized this was probably quite wrong. And, uh, the, the longest known krill we, we, the, the longest lived krill that we know about is, was about 11 years old. So, uh. It's a considerable that, difference. Uh, it's a huge difference. And it, it, it changes the way you think of these animals because mm-hmm. they're not these quick turnover animals. They're, the, they're in for the long run. And so their behavior, their evolution, everything has geared them to be there to survive many years and many seasons. One of the things I think we've discovered in the lab space, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, we understand now that krill can get bigger when food is abundant and actually shrink in size when not. So some of the ideas on being able to tell how old a krill was, which was all more or less down to size for quite some time, uh, that's now seen as much more complicated. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So that's, um, yeah, that, that first started when people were looking at, um, the, uh, the, uh, you know, how, for a start, how long could krill go without food? And this was a study that was done here in Australia. And, uh, uh, the, the, it, it's really meticulous work because people at first thought krill were incredibly difficult to keep alive in the laboratory. And it took a, a while to learn the tricks that you need to keep them going. And once you know those tricks, you can actually keep them going for, a, a very long time. So uh, once uh, the, the 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 secrets of keeping krill alive were discovered, 
uh, we started asking these questions like how long can they go without food because in the Antarctic winter the, the, at the time the, the, the logic was that there isn't much food out there how did they do it mm-hmm. and so star- starving them for um, 200 days proved that they, they could just they just cope they, they don't have a problem with it um, but as you say, they get smaller, and that wasn't that was not the expected result. And so, what happens is, krill molt about every month. Mm-hmm. Um, they get rid of their old shell, you know, so, so much like lobsters do. Um, but they do it very regularly. And when food's abundant, they grow, and when food isn't abundant, they shrink. And so, this means that uh, at the start of the 200-day experiment, the krill were um, quite big, summer-sized krill. At the end, they were really small, um, and in fact, they looked exactly like juvenile krill, and they'd lost all their secondary sexual characteristics. So you couldn't actually tell them apart from uh, from uh, krill that were much younger and which hadn't been through um, a sexual development. So, and that completely confuses things because it means that your whole idea of how their life cycle work works, which was based largely on studying, um, uh, you know, preserved krill um, was quite wrong. And then uh, when we started keeping them alive for long times, we knew they were, they were very long-lived. And we started asking, well, how come we didn't know this before? And as you said, it's because the way that we measure the age of krill is just through their length. And obviously, if they're going through many winters and shrinking and growing and, and so on, then that's not a very good way to measure age. And so that's been a major thrust of krill research for the last 30 years, um, is trying to find a better way to age krill. So in a lab space, obviously, one of the things you do have is a size restriction. And since one of the interesting things about this creature is that you get these massive swarms, are we able yes. to see kind of smaller scale swarms in a in a laboratory environment? Yeah, you can. Um, so you can make krill school in in the in the lab if you have big enough tanks. Mm-hmm. And we have tanks here in the uh, in the Australian Antarctic Division that are big enough where you can actually induce schooling behavior, um, sort of about you know half a meter in diameter. And uh, it's really neat to see it because uh, it just you look at it, you go, "Wow, look at that! These are these are <laughs> bona fide animals doing things animals do." So, so that's uh, and it also means that because we know that they do it in the field, it means that we actually have conditions in the lab that are um, that are um, good enough that they'll they'll do complex behavior, which is uh, means that we can begin to trust the sorts of results we get out of some of the laboratory experiments. Yeah, I guess that's always the challenge when you take an animal out of its natural environment and try to recreate an environment in a lab. There's always something that's going to be artificial about that. And so you get in the same way that when you put an animal in a zoo, the behaviors we see sometimes in zoo animals is very different than the behaviors in the wild. So I suppose as a, as a scientist studying krill in the lab, that's something you kind of have to keep top of mind is that is this an authentic behavior that we would see in the wild? Or is this potentially an artifact of an artificial environment? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so you, you do have, and when you're setting up experiments, it's important to, that you set up experiments that are largely robust to that sort of um, uh, issue because you don't want to um, have your work challenged because it was just a, a, 
it was done in the lab as opposed to the field. But having said that, there are you know there are always people who um, don't believe a word of what comes out of the laboratory, and uh, uh, and then you know so you have to try and do your best job, knowing that the environment they're in is uh, is very different from what they would be in normal. So I also want to talk a little bit about fisheries regulation, because um, this was a little bit of a surprising find for me in this book. And uh, because I am such a super nerd, it was a really fascinating section to hear a little bit more about in particular how Antarctic fisheries are managed and the complexities involved in that. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about the commission and um, the fisheries for krill and the regulation there? Because I, I'm a super nerd and I found this really interesting. <laughs> Oh, really good, because that's the chapter that most people had the most difficulty with. So uh, uh, it's it's a very complex um, issue because it goes down to how the Antarctic's governed and um, international law and all these sorts of things. Um, so the, uh, the Antarctic uh, itself is run by a thing called the Antarctic Treaty, which has, um, uh, I think... Uh, well, I can't remember how many members, but but the spin-off of the Antarctic Treaty was this commission called the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, which was established to manage the fisheries in the region because um, in the uh, late 1970s, there was no management of fisheries going on down there. Uh, and the fisheries were getting bigger. And so the whole idea was to try and uh, ensure that Overexploitation of marine resources down there didn't occur uh, to the uh, because of the the uh, effects that sealing and whaling had had um, uh, sort of a, a, in the century before. So people were really worried when krill fishing started because that's the food of the seals, the whales, and uh, everything else down there. So they wanted to make sure that this wasn't going to um, be a disaster like um, previous exploitation in the Antarctic. And so this very um, uh, innovative treaty was set up. And it was set, uh, the reason it's innovative was because of the krill, because fishing for krill meant you had to take a different approach to management. You couldn't just say you can take a portion of the, of the krill population and that's that. You had to take into account the needs of the rest of the um, organisms that are down there as well. So they developed what became known as the ecosystem approach to management. And it was about the first um, uh, resource management treaty that took that approach. And it also um, uh, was about the first resource management treaty that took uh, took um, what's known now as the precautionary approach in the way where you have uh, to make a decision, you err on the side of caution uh, rather than on the side of exploitation. And so that made it really innovative. And so that's been operating since 1981. And it manages the fisheries. Some of, which, some of them are successfully managed. Others are not quite so successfully managed. But uh, the pearl fishery has up until now been successfully managed. Um, and it's largely nothing to do with the um, commission. It's because it's just not economically um, attractive to, to fish for krill. But what that means is that the commission has, managed, uh, has been able to put in place a whole range of measures that regulate the, the fisheries for krill at a time when there wasn't much pressure on, so nobody was really objecting. 
So if the fishery did start to grow, um, then we would have this um, uh, these measures that could control the expansion of the fishery, control where it occurs and how much it takes and so on. So it's it's actually been very good um, uh, for krill that they're not economically attractive, but that's not to say they won't be at some point in the future. So at the moment, we aren't doing sort of enough, as far as we're aware, we're not doing a, enough kind of commercial fishing of krill. I definitely don't generally hear of, of krill being a kind of popular commercial item. Um, it definitely is not something that we eat a lot of. Um, I think we use krill as food for um, other animals we're trying to raise in some situations. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so so the main uses for krill are as an aquaculture feed. Um, uh, it has uh, the attractive property that it's red, and uh, feed uh, uh, fishes like salmon and so on need red coloration in their food. So it's really good for that, and it's it's a, it's a really good nutritional source for most um, fish species. So it has actually um, a good thing to feed them, but it's just really expensive if you go to Antarctica to catch it. So, um, uh, the other thing that is, uh, that really is the most valuable thing from the fishery at the moment, um, but is taken in small amounts is, uh, uh, krill oil, which is an omega-3 oil, and that's used as a human health supplement. And, uh, but as I say, only a small proportion of the catch is used for that. Um, so those are the main products of the fishery. Um, but there's been lots of experiments into trying to make um, uh, products for human consumption from krill, uh, but they're not. Uh, but again, it's it's really expensive to uh, to to catch the krill, and it's actually much cheaper to get your marine protein elsewhere if that's what you're after. I seem to recall as well. There's a, a, an even more complicated part with catching krill in that um, once they've died, there's an enzyme that starts to kick in, which causes a lot of problems as well. So you have to try and prevent that enzyme from. I think it, it changes them to a different color or something like that. Ah, uh, there's all sorts of little problems like that. So yeah, so the um, so there is the um, uh, there is uh, the uh, the enzymes. Yeah, so they've got the most powerful en- um, proteolytic enzymes known to man. And uh, so that's uh, that's a, uh, that means that you know when they, when they're dead they start um, rotting immediately and they turn black very quickly. So you actually have to process them incredibly quickly, and that of course means that uh, uh, you even though there's lots of krill there, you can't keep catching it because you can't process it quickly enough. Right, and that sl- slows it down. It makes it more expensive, and so on. Um, and there have been attempts to use the um, to use that enzyme in medical uses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, uh, uh, I don't know where that's going, but it's, uh, it's unlikely to be something that will drive the fishery. So the other, the other aspect of the krill that's really d- difficult, uh, from a commercial point of view is that, um, the shell, um, uh, has very, um, high concentration of fluorine in. And uh, so to the point where it's actually poisonous if you eat a lot of krill. Mm-hmm. So for human consumption and for most land-based mammals, um, you actually have to peel the krill before you can actually feed them to it. And that, again, adds to the cost. It becomes really, really um, a tricky process. Um, uh, fish and marine animals can cope with the fluoride, but mm-hmm. um, uh, terrestrial animals can't. So it's... Uh, 
So uh, the history of the fishery is, is a history of running up against these problems that nobody expected and then finding them and then trying to find solutions to them. But the solutions are always expensive solutions. And so the, the fishery has uh, remained smaller than people imagined it would do. So when we're talking about fisheries, um, how, how are we keeping track of this? Because one of the challenges, obviously, we've got swarms of small creatures moving around the ocean. And it sounds like being able to track population and in particular, the change of population over time can be really challenging to get those numbers accurate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, that's one of the big problems is trying to get an accurate idea of how much krill is out there. Um, and as I said before, you know, the techniques we have are, um, fairly crude or have been up until recently. Um, and the effort you have to put in to, um, estimate how much krill there is in a particular area is absolutely huge. Um, so you have to, uh, you have to use, um, workarounds to that. So you use all the information that's available. So we, we're reasonably comfortable that we have a ballpark estimate of how much krill is out there at any one time. And that's somewhere between about 300 million tons and 500 million tons. And that's based on where we know krill occurs, what sort of densities we find in those areas, and also how much krill is required by the populations of predators that we have reasonably good numbers on. So you can actually, you can, estimate whether you're in the right ballpark area. And then when you're setting your management quotas of how much krill can be caught, you then have to take a lot of that uncertainty into account and say, well, okay, uh, we we just realize there's a large amount of error in this estimation. Therefore, uh, therefore the, the quota is, is going to be much lower. And the, uh, and the idea is that we, we end up with several different estimates and we take the lowest one. This is the sort of the precautionary approach coming in. And then we add several other layers of precaution below that. So we're not anticipating that the, the fishery will ever uh, approach what we think is the, the, the amount of krill that's out there. And the idea is to prevent it at all costs. Yeah, my assumption is, is it's a concern uh, as well. It's a concern, obviously, because we don't want the krill to, to be overfished, but also since they form a, a foundational or sort of more low level base layer of food resource in the ecosystem that uh, a real uh, uh, hurting the krill population will have potentially quite large impacts on other types of animals who use who either eat krill directly or who eat something that eats krill. Yes, uh, and I hate to say this, but most people don't actually care much about krill. They care about the seals and the penguins and the whales. And so um, most of the concern about the krill fishery is about taking the food away from uh, the the cuddly animals. <laughs> so, um, But there are a few of us who do care about the krill as well. So uh, you have uh, – uh, what you have to do is to make sure that uh, – the needs of those animals are taken into account at every step. And that's the way the, the fishery is managed at the moment. Um, and as I say, this, the, the fishery for the last, well, since the early 1980s, when the Soviet Union was fishing for krill, which they were taking about half a million tons of krill a year, um, it's, it's dropped down uh, for most of the period between now. And it's now crept up to about 300,000 tons a year. And that sounds like a lot, but it's actually... 
um, when you think that we're thinking that there's um, uh, possibly 300 million tons of krill out there, it's not actually um, a large portion of the, the of the krill population. So what we're actually talking about is making sure that that catch is not concentrated in areas that's going to affect the um, the animals that are dependent on krill, um, and that uh, we take it at a time of year when those animals are completely dependent on krill. Ah, so it's not just about how much, it's also how much from precisely where and when so that we're not impacting kind of known, for example, whale feeding grounds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Although whale feeding grounds is a bit more tricky. Um, it's People are much more concerned because the whales are big and mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they've got a lot more leeway as to where they can feed. Uh, yeah. It's more things like penguins. And so you don't want to take all your krill um, offshore of a penguin colony that's totally krill dependent. Um, or it's a time of year when those um, those penguins are desperately dependent on krill to feed their young. So, so you take all those things into account. And the management system is getting much more sophisticated as time goes on. So mm-hmm. it started off with just quotas on really large areas, and it's it's going down now um, um, uh, in scale and incorporating time as well. And as I said, because the 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 fishery hasn't expanded as rapidly as people feared. There's been time to do all this sort of uh, more sophisticated management. Do we have some idea how krill might be affected by the ongoing climate change? Because when we think about oceans in particular, um, I know that there's a lot of concern about the changing environments in the ocean. Um, obviously, temperature changes, uh, pH balance changes, those kinds of things. I'm assuming that's a concern for krill as well. And do we have any idea at present um, whether or not they're they're feeling some impact from the climate change that we're experiencing currently? Um, so, yes. We expect that there will be, uh, or even are, major changes that are affecting krill, but we're not entirely sure how uh, how much is happening at the moment. So uh, I mentioned earlier the fact that the the, um, the sea ice has uh, retreated in winter um, from large areas of the Antarctic Peninsula, and that obviously affects the krill, and it affects the krill larvae because they, that's their habitat. So the question is uh, whether the krill larvae can survive without ice, and uh, uh, we don't quite know that yet. Um, uh, but in theory, it should be catastrophic. Uh, in practice, it d- doesn't seem to be yet. Um, and there are, you know, so there are balances here as well because the larvae need the ice, but the adults prefer the open ocean. Mm. So. Uh, so the adults might do really well if all the ice went away, but the larvae might not. So uh, th- there will be some uh, some ups and downs of this. Um, we know things like um, the uh, uh, krill actually live in a fairly narrow temperature range, mm-hmm. which is between about mi- minus 1.8 and 5 degrees. And so if the water starts getting warmer than 5 degrees, they will start restricting their range to further south or will live in deeper water, which is colder anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it's going to be a really complex um, uh, reaction to to temperature changes with the sea ice and, and, and what happens with the, with the warming ocean. So, uh, so that's 
that side of things. The, the ocean acidification story doesn't look good. Um, but, uh, because we know that uh, very, if you increase the pH levels um, uh, um, in the seawater, then uh, the krill embryos don't develop properly, and that increases the temperature quite a bit. And uh, but again, uh, we don't know what will happen if they're given some time to adapt to those levels. Um, and the adults seem to not care. A, Hell of a lot about the about the uh, the pH levels, but they're also nice and big. And if they don't like the water they're living in, they'll go somewhere else. Right. So, so to me, the behavior of krill is going to be the key to all of these things. Mm-hmm. Is that they will whether their behavior can adapt to to a lot of these changes and can adapt quickly enough. Um, uh, we'll just have to wait and see, unfortunately. And. Because it's so, uh, as we talked about earlier, it's so difficult to monitor the entire population of krill. In fact, it's impossible. So these changes may take a long while to um, to detect. So we won't be able to see um, what effect uh, the uh, uh, you know sort of a, a change in sea ice is having until we've looked at it for quite a long time over quite a large area and. Um, so uh, being definitive about these things is really difficult. So people try and put what they can, what they know, into models. And unfortunately, the models always come up with doom and gloom. <laughs> so um, I, I have a lot more faith in krill as an animal than just say, well, okay, they've su- survived down there for an awful lot of time, and there's been a lot of changes. And hopefully they, they, they can cope with things um, and if they can go with things, there's not much hope for humans, I think. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> Stephen, it's been lovely to have you and thank you very much for the book. It was uh, a really interesting read and I was quite happy to have found it and uh, it proved my point quite well. And it was also really delightful to have you on the show today. Okay, that was lovely. Thanks very much indeed. If you want to learn more about Stephen Nickel or his book, The Curious Life of Krill, A Conservation Story from the Bottom of the World, we have notes up on our show notes for this episode, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 